piddle piddle piddle, hey piddle piddle yo ho ho, ho ho Christmas 250 podcast, hey piddle piddle piddle. Ho ho ho, hello and welcome to the 250, <laughs> your weekly podcast looking at the IB's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host Darren, and joining me as well as my co-host Andrew Quinn. How are you Andrew on this fine Christmas day? Ho ho ho, Merry Christmas! I'm, I'm really disappointed I don't have a window I can yeah. open and shout out. Boy, do you know what day it is? I was I was wondering if I if I would say that Santa was here, but we generally we do badly when we're when we're trying to be uh, funny or good. Um, yeah, so. yeah, no, we, we mostly just got to just coast on an average. We aim for average and we can land there. But yes, it is Christmas, and we have That's two. generous, Darren. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I drag you down. Um, let's be honest. But uh, we are we are we're very lucky. We have two fantastic guests here talking about a fantastic movie. We were talking about Billy Wilder's 1959, Some Like It Hot. And we have two amazing guests we're very lucky to have. First of all, rejoining us for the first time. I think we did the maths before we went on in roughly a year. The wonderful Charlene Leiden. How are you, Charlene? I'm good. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Happy Christmas. How is your Christmas day going so far? Sorry for taking yeah. you away from your family. Oh, that's okay. I'm so full. I just needed a nap because I just ate so much. And it's like dozens of children running around after like just being completely hyper from getting too many presents. That's how my day is going so far. <laughs> Fantastic. And Rena McGregor, <laughs> the one of Rena McGregor joining us uh, after I think about six months, maybe seven months. How are you? How are things? Good, good. Has it really been that long? Probably, yeah, it probably seven months ago. now that it's it's actually Christmas Day. Yeah, I think that timing checks out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've we've done the maths here. We've we've done the hard work. Um, so before before we jump in, um, I just want to ask you guys, um, because you know typically the two fifty Christmas is a very organized occasion where we think very carefully about the movie that we're going to talk about. It absolutely one hundred and ten percent definitely is a Christmas movie. Uh, this year, however, I seem to have just thrown a dart at a board and said we're doing some like it hot uh, because I wouldn't have Charlie and I wouldn't have Reno gone. Uh, and we talked about Billy Wilder and I love Billy Wilder and I think this kind of counts. But to throw it open to the group. So, Charlene, I guess, is some like it hot a Christmas movie? I mean, not in any way, shape or form, <laughs> apart from the fact that it is a delightful film to watch with anyone of any age. Therefore, it would be the DVD I would reach for on Christmas Day if uh, if everyone's gathered around. I just would have no qualms about showing it to anybody, uh, but in no other way, I think. And <laughs> uh, Rena, what about yourself? Yeah, it's in 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 any essence. I think there's snow in it, so you know if snow is a yeah. qualifying factor for seasonal <laughs> qualification criteria for Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's in it for like a very brief amount of time, so. For the snow factor, yes, but I think for me, I've watched this film since, you know, I, about eight years old, every single Christmas, it would be a fixture. So for me, it's, uh, you know, it is 100% a Christmas film and only watch it on Christmas Day. Yeah. Now, I mean, we should acknowledge that, like, the film is inspired by the famous St. Valentine's Day massacre. So maybe we should have done it for the Valentine's Day slot, Two Guys Die Alone, which feels like an appropriate subtitle in some ways for where this movie starts, perhaps. Um, but it does, I think, take place over winter. They do talk about, like, winter being a thing and getting away. Uh, you know, rich millionaires go south for the winter. So I think it kind of counts in that sense. But Andrew, is there any way to make an argument for some Like It Hot as a Christmas movie? Um... <laughs> well yeah i mean i mean the all of the like the kind of cold pheasant and champagne and stuff feels quite uh christmasy maybe the cranberry sauce there's cranberry sauce 
<laughs> I seem to be going at it from like the food and drink angle. Um, <laughs> so mint sauce or cranberries. Mint sauce or cranberries. That's what I was going to say. It's essentially yeah, it's very Christmas. festive. And there's sparkles. Yeah. There's a lot of glitter, which you know. A couple of musical numbers. That's really Christmassy. Yeah. I suppose. Parties. <laughs> yeah, parties, whiskey. That's- yeah. Black and white. I mean, you know, it's it's got that kind of old timey Christmas thing going on there. Yeah. I guess you know, Schindler's List is famously the most Christmas movie because it has like black and white There's and a little bit of red. Bad red. Uh, <laughs> is it a big train journey for people going home? For yeah, yeah like the Polar Express. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it just it just fits absolutely perfectly. There is no way to criticize the choice of this as this year's Christmas movie. Uh, but more more seriously, do we remember the first time that we saw? Um, some like it hot. So I think Greenux suggests that this has always been like a Christmas favorite. Um, but do we have like memories of when we kind of first came to it and kind of our first responses to it, or is it something that has just always been there? So Charlene, yourself. So uh, yeah, this this film actually has a lot uh, has a huge place in the history of me liking things because <laughs> uh, uh, like when I was growing up, I never never would have been shown like old films or anything. So. Uh, I remember babysitting, so I was probably about 13 or thereabouts. It was like when I first started babysitting. Is this the beginning of your Ed Norton thing? <laughs> to put it in the uh, 250 history. Around that time. Yeah, when did Primal Fear come out? Around then. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I just remember it being like on telly and black and white and me going like, black and white, this is going to be crap. <laughs> uh, but it was on and I had like two channels probably at my disposal. Um but I, I just remembered like sticking it on and like just laughing my arse off and being genuinely surprised that something old was able to make me laugh. And I just it just kind of opened my my tiny puny mind to the possibilities that things outside of Ace Ventura and Police Academy could make me laugh. <laughs> um, so, oh, yeah. And like and it was just kind of one of those moments that I'll always remember just being kind of like quite surprised I'd never really seen Marilyn Monroe in a movie before either like obviously knew who she was and I'd seen pictures of her but like she's obviously amazing in pictures but when you watch her perform and how charming she is and just what a like sparkling presence she has uh, even as a young idiot who wasn't used to watching things in black and white, um, I was like, well, she's beautiful for a person in black and white. Um, but yeah, it, it really it really kind of um, opened me up to like a whole other bunch of films. And I mean, my opinion of it has never changed. I revisited it so, so often. Um, and I just I just love it so much. So yeah, I remember watching it better than I remember most films. <laughs> So it was kind of a transformative experience. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Um, and and Rena, what about yourself? Do you have like do you have a particular memory associated with first watching, it, or is it just as you mentioned, like every every Christmas it's always been? It there? was every Christmas. Um, I do have a really vivid memory of watching it. It's kind of similar in a way because it was a it was a neighborhood friend who had seen it, and we were over in her house, and we were going to watch some movies. And you know, when you're nine years old, you're like, yeah. Ace Ventura, you know, maybe not Police Academy, but, you know, in the same kind of vein, you're like, yeah, Jim Carrey, whatever, cool. And you're like, we watched a double bill of Some Like It Hot and It's a Wonderful Life. And I looked at both the covers and was like, ew, black and white, this is going to be ridiculous. And then was won over very, very, very quickly by um, how charming it was. And I remember sitting there pretending to not like it but still like 
<laughs> every few seconds and yeah then then I think it was it was always on RTE2 during Christmas day so that's how I think that kind of started that process it would just always be on either BBC or RTE every single Christmas so not even without even having to source it out it became a fixture and then eventually it just became a fixture yeah, I do wonder if like me marking this as a Christmas movie is a particularly Irish uh, phenomenon because I did actually when I was doing research for this I found that like Paul Willingham wrote an article for the Independent.ie acknowledging that some like it hot was a Christmas fixture of Irish television in mm. particular and it's I think one of the only discussions of it as a Christmas movie that I have I've ever seen. <laughs> um, so I, I do love the idea that some like it hot has been adopted as a particularly Irish uh, Christmas phenomenon. <laughs> but Andrew, what about yourself? Had you seen is, this before? Is, actually, were you at all? Is it like a thing where it's particular where it was particularly cheap in our market? Like, That's didn't, probably didn't, fair. Didn't, exactly why? Yeah, didn't, <laughs> didn't we say that like um, um, it's a beautiful life um, yeah. was like one of the like. I, I, love it, I think it was Christmas free, movies. wasn't it? It was like out of copyright or something. The, the, there was basically some sort of term like that. Yeah. Where like the, for the first couple of years, it was basically in the library that they could pull from. Exactly. So, so they, it was like every Christmas, this is going on. <laughs> Nobody watches TV at Christmas anyway. Forced us to love it over time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Ted Turner got his grubby little mitts on it. And I was like, yeah, what if we could make it in color? But um, yeah, I'm 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 a, a, a terrible co-host of a uh, film podcast because I, I I almost never remember <laughs> when, when I first watched a movie. Yeah, but 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 I, I I what I do remember is having a, a, a lot of the same kind of um, feelings that 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 Charlene and Marina have kind of mentioned in relation to it. Um, like yeah, what what watching an old movie in black and white. And I know I had seen other funny movies in black and white, but being surprised at how kind of, um, like, obviously there are parts of it that aren't particularly contemporary in their sensibilities, but how how funny it was kind of uh, considering, how funny it was in that particular way, considering how old it was. And I I guess we'll talk a little bit about that later. And then also seeing kind of um, Marilyn Monroe in um, in a film, because 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 I had been familiar with, with with her before. I think I mentioned on the podcast there was the the Chronicle of the Twentieth Century was this big thick kind of encyclopedia where it was kind of like it was sort of was like this a your newspaper, newspaper is sort of yeah yeah. 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 But it's a, a really thick uh, book where it goes from like nineteen hundred. To I guess whenever it was bought, which I, I suppose ah, was like nineteen eighty six or something. Well. Yeah, it was great because um, you read about all this stuff like, and it's it's kind of like um, it's like every anyway. Sorry, yes, I do remember it, and I did enjoy it. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and again, like we should note, this is uh, a massively, hugely influential, iconic uh, piece of American cinema. You know, it, on the a- a- AFI's, you know, 100 Years, 100 Movies list, it came 14th. In the 2000, 100 Years, 100 Laughs, it came first. As one of the most quotable final lines in the history of movies, and I'm sure we'll talk about that again as well. Uh, and it's just continuously pulled well. I'm looking back over... <clears throat> like its list of kind of accomplishments and awards that it was nominated for. And I mean, all the, all the usual stuff is there. Got nominated for the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, for example. Picked up a bunch of Academy Awards, including winning Best Costume Design in Black and White. What I do love just as... On this podcast, as an Irish podcast that frequently talks about American films, we talk about, like, the wonderful 
tendency of the Oscars to award to foreign films um, and international films and stuff like that, as if, you know, we are collectively Americans even over here in Ireland. What I do love is that you go back to the awards for like 1959, 1960, when Some Like It Hot was released. And you look at things like, say, the British Academy Film Awards. And it was nominated for, and I quote here, Best Film from Any Source and Best Foreign Actor for Jack Lemmon. You look at things like the Bambi Awards in Germany and Tony Curtis gets Best Actor International in that category as well. So I do kind of like that, like when this was happening like, it wasn't all, we didn't just assume by default that American films were the only films that existed, which is kind of cool. Um, just very briefly before we talk about the movie, just a little bit of background kind of information here. Um, it was inspired by a German musical, com- musical comedy from 1932 called Fanfares of Love. Um, Wilder apparently thought that movie was dreadful, but it did have a single good idea, which was the idea of two male musicians who latched on to an all-girl band. And that was kind of the premise that he ran with. We talked a great deal about how this movie is in black and white, and I think we'll come back to that maybe later on in kind of talking about what it is and what it does. It was chosen, uh, Wilder was a big fan of black and white in general. He continued to shoot like in black and white well past the point where color had kind of come in. And we've talked about this a little bit with like the next year he made The Apartment, which I think is the last Best Picture winner, uh, with the notable exception of uh, Schindler's List, which does have a bit of red in it, uh, to win the Best Picture Oscar until The Artist. Uh, And here's a quote on Wilder on using black and white. I hate color. Even words sound phony when the picture is in color. Everybody looks blue or red. It's like shooting a jukebox. Some of the coloured films that the English or Japanese have made are subtle, but the way we pour on that multicoloured sherbet, it's nauseating. Uh, Apparently, specifically in the case of Some Like It Hot, he discovered that Despite the fact that Marla Monroe had a contractual obligation that all of her films would be in colour, because she was, again, a young icon, uh, blonde hair, huge part of her appeal, um, this film was shot in black and white when it was discovered that the makeup on Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis to soften their features made them look green uh, when they were shot on (laughs) colour film. So it was shot in black and white for that reason. Um, this is a, a hugely important, hugely influential film for reasons that we'll come back to. But notably, it was one of the films that pushed the boundaries of the Hayes Code. Um, so it arrived in 1959. Well, it wasn't approved and, by the Hayes Code, wasn't it? And it, it, it? That's it. That's it, exactly. And it was a huge success kind of in spite of it. And then people were like, why do we have this? What, what, um, is, the, what is even the yeah, point of the Yeah, it kind of undermined the whole kind of idea of it. Because I, I think like hmm. these days, and like even in, in the 90s and everything like that, like we talked about... Um, uh, Spielberg and Gremlins, but there, there, there's this kind of like studios want their films to 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 be like a a, a PG thirteen or a PG twelve yeah. or whatever, and and they'll, that they'll the add swear code, words to to a G rating to get a PG rating because that will make it easier to sell to kids. Right, the PG rating's easier to sell to kids than the G rating. But that the like what surprised me looking at this was that they like I always kind of thought that the Hayes Code was some like um form of 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 kind of censorship and I, I i guess it was but that you could choose to either kind of like um uh, meet the the standard of the Hayes code or not and 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 that it was a kind of a choice like 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 studios these well, it days. was it was self-censorship was yeah the thing. so like the big the big fear for hollywood was that if they didn't regulate themselves 
uh, people would lobby the government to come in and, and regulate right. them. Again, it's worth noting, like this film takes place in 1929 as prohibitions coming into effect. Like in the 20s, Hollywood was looking at like the move towards conservatism in the States and going, well, look, if people are agitating to ban alcohol, imagine what they're going to do to our films that contain violence and sex. So we should ourselves agree to regulate them and just keep it all above board. Uh, but yeah, it was never really something that was strictly enforced outside of the kind of handshake agreement of, well, we've all agreed to abide by this and none of us want to shake the apple cart too much kind of thing, um, which is interesting. I mean, it, it, like specifically in the case of Some Like It Hot, which I find like Some Like It Hot is kind of hilarious. Well, it is hilarious because it's a really good comedy, but it's hilarious in the social context because like by 1959, the Hayes Code was kind of weakening. And there's, there's a quote here from the man charged with enforcing the rules conceded that if a moral conflict provided the proper frame of reference, a code approved film could deal with pretty much any topic with the exception of homosexuality. Naturally, in 1959, some like it hot basically, you know, kind of like takes a torch to that and basically says, OK, well, even that last standing rule of the Hayes Code kind of doesn't stand. The Catholic League of Decency, uh, headed by, and I quote here, the very reverend Monsignor Thomas F. Little, complained that some like it hot contained, and I quote, screen material elements that are judged to be seriously offensive to Christian and traditional standards of morality and decency. The subject matter of transvestism naturally leads to complications. In this film, there seemed to us clear inference of homosexuality and lesbianism. The dialogue was not only double entendre, but outright smut. The offence in costuming was obvious. Uh, end yeah. quote. And, and, and so I you think ha- the, the, the filmmakers were surprised by this, because nobody expects the Catholic League of Decency. <laughs> <laughs> and, Sorry. Well, that, that's that's the the famous thing about Wilder was Wilder was very good at layering in double entendres, and whenever anybody would call him on it, his response would be, "Wait, what are you implying?" <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. Like when when Marilyn Monroe climbs into bed with Jack Lemmon and talks about how it's a big warm cave. What do you think she's talking about, you filthy devil? Um, but like, it, it's worth noting that you know. A year after Some Like It Hot was released, the MPA basically said, Just okay, look, fine. imagine that Monsignor's so- red face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like a year afterwards, you have the MPA coming in, as, as Andrew said, suggesting ratings, which I kind of love as well. Um, and so, uh, and again, every time it's, it's cause this is the point where like every time they, they do stuff, the, the goalposts move in a way that there's the culture mm-hmm. saying no, not anymore, which is great. Um, so in 1968, they say, okay, look, we're, we're not going to impose a code of decency or morality. What we're going to do is we're going to impose a set of ratings on you. And, uh, you know, those ratings will determine who gets to see your films and you play by the rules and you'll get rated properly and fair. And, you know, or is the hardest possible rating. So you submit to us and you get an or rating that is as hard as it'll go. That's the hardest thing that'll be released in cinemas. Nobody's going to want to see a movie that gets anything worse than an or. 1969, the year after that's announced, what wins best picture? Midnight Cowboy, which was <laughs> released with an X rating because it did not submit to the MPAA. Um, so yeah, I kind of it's interesting that like some like it hot exists like in that huge cultural point of transition where in a decade you go from this um to midnight cowboy and the entire house of cards of the whole Hayes code uh you know 
kind of self-censorship of Hollywood kind of collapsing into itself. Um, all right, then. So before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions uh, to get us started. So, Reduk, do you think Some Like It Hot belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. <laughs> How would it rank for you in terms of like Wilder films? Is this his best film? Is this like his icon? Is this a distillation? It, like, Where does it fall for you in terms of a director we've talked about quite a bit here? Um, the Apartment for me is still number one. Um, I think I might have said Sunset Boulevard was my number one when we did Sunset Boulevard. But I think those are sort of, that's, that's the hierarchy for me is um, Apartment, Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot. While I love Some Like It Hot, it is the kind of escapism film that is the, it's the rush of serotonin with it. I used to kind of call it, um, it's like a chocolate film because it just gives you that same kind of warm, fuzzy feeling from eating uh, copious amounts of chocolate like you would on Christmas Day. So I think it kind of evokes the same chemical response in your brain like chocolate. But yeah, I think it's it's a it's a seminal Wilder film, but it is not my top Wilder film. Right. And and by the way, listeners should keep an ear out when we have Renoff back on to talk about Witness for the Prosecution and see if that makes the sudden top of the list as well, just Ooh. in terms of establishing that hierarchy. That's um, a good point. <laughs> and, and Shirley, what about yourself? Do you think this is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Definitely. Like, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and, and in terms of Wilder, would it be the same for you? Would you kind of, or would this be high, low, where would it fall kind of thing? I find it hard to pit Wilder films against each other because they're always so different. Do it, do it. <laughs> You're not wilder about well, the idea. Hey. No? Well, I like some like it hard and I like the apartment. What's the solution? Fight. Fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like these two things, one of them needs to be good and the other needs to be bad. Lemon versus yeah. lemon. Jack Lemon against Jack Lemon. Can't yeah. do it. Um, when life gives you lemons, make a, an arbitrary ranking system. It's like <laughs> it's like Superman three. <laughs> I I probably like if if I'm honest with myself, probably some like it hot because I just watch it. I've watched it so many more times I've watched any of the others. The others are so dark and cool that so I just, they're more on brand. For this. Nobody's perfect. I really like to watch. Um, but like it probably would be Sunset Boulevard, some like it hot, um, probably swapping places for my one and two quite a bit. But yeah, I just find it quite difficult. Um, so we're serving up plenty of hot takes here. Hey. Andrew, um, do you think that this belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, yes, yes, I do. Um, absolutely. And it, it's uh, in terms of um, Wilder movies, I think, um, well, certainly in terms of Jack Lemmon movies, I think The Apartment is, 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 is much better. Like, like he has much to do, but I think he, um, I think he's better than Curtis in this. Um, oh, yeah. And, um, and in, 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 in The Apartment. You and the Academy. You in the Academy. <laughs> yeah, the Academy. yeah. <laughs> and I, I, like, I, I kind of, I have, I definitely have like a soft spot for um, Sunset Boulevard, but it's so weird. 
Like <laughs> that's <laughs> why it's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but that 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 might make it more kind of like um, belong on my two fifty rather than like the two fifty. Um, yeah, that and and but this is just such a kind of a crowd pleaser. It kind of has a little something for everything. Uh, so, so, sorry, something for everyone. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. I'd, 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 um, I'd certainly put it on 250. How about yourself, Darren? Yeah, I mean, I think that just in terms of cultural importance, bringing the whole studio system crumbling down and demolishing the idea of self-censorship in Hollywood kind of makes it an argument for it as a important historical document, as well as being like one of the great iconic screen comedies. There aren't too many comedies on the 250. Uh, in terms of Wilder movies and cultural impact, I think it's this, The Apartment and Sunset Boulevard, uh, with no disrespect to like Witness for the Prosecution and Double Indemnity, both of which are also on the 250. Uh, Wilder, very good filmmaker, Darren says controversial hottest possible take this podcast has ever <laughs> yeah. ever had hot take um, i definitely yeah. put it above some uh, like it hot du- takes double indemnity and i like double indemnity but double indemnity just seems like such a kind of a um a, a sort of a like like an episodic genre movie you know kind of l- l- it's almost like an episode of a tv show or something um, it's like Columbo, but he just never yeah, shows up. Yeah, yeah. Or it, it's is is it a Raymond Chandler novel? Because um, it it kind of feels like it. Sorry, sorry. Are we off to the fact zone? We're 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 heading off to the fact machine then. Machine. <laughs> it's the no the, spin the zone. I, the the fact machine. The fact machine. <laughs> But I mean, and I say this as if like we, we covered Double Indemnity, so I should remember this off the top of my head, but I don't because I'm terrible. Hold on. Also, it's Christmas. Um, no, I am not yeah. looking for the Google concept of Double Indemnity. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Double Jeopardy. Ashley. Uh, Kane. It, it's James M. Kane. Yes. Uh, yes. Got We're there back before from the fact you. machine. You did indeed. <laughs> um, you also have a fact machine? It's a thudge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, then, and, and for my yeah, so that that's kind of my answer. That is absolutely definitely um, fact. My stuff. and then, um, sorry, Harina, what about so would it be on your own personal fifty, your own two hundred fifty curated personal favorite movies that you've ever seen, and kind of roughly where would it rank? I mean, we we would like a numerical value if you have it, but like, would it be high? Would it be low? Um, that's a that's a tough one because it when I'm talking about my favorite films, it it definitely wouldn't pop to mind. It would be like a film that I do watch a lot, but I kind of like, it's was similar to what you said, Charlie. It's like it, you, you gravitate more towards the sunset Boulevard. It's like, yes, that's my favorite film, but then this is the one you end up watching the most. So where would that rank in terms of, 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 uh, of 250? I'd say maybe ooh, 75, I think. I like it. That's, that's oh, 75. You actually gave a good hard number. I appreciate it. Um, I was try, trying like, to picture it and it was going up and down and then that's where it landed. Um, Charlene, the, the, the standard having just been set by Rita, don't feel you have to give a hard number. I'm very number. intimidated. Um, yeah. um, but but uh, would it be on your own personal like 250 favorite movies, as you said? Like, would it, would it kind of, if somebody put a gun to your head, your favorite 250, would it be there? And if it is... Roughly, where would it be to a very precise, exact number? It's your wallet, your phone, and your 200 favorite <laughs> movies. I should write that out sometime, just so I always have this answer. Um, I think it's hard to say, but like when I think about um, my favorite comedies, I there's three that are always in my head, and it's this, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Fish Called Wanda. So like, 
it has to be like really close to the top then but like <laughs> I do have a tendency towards the dark <laughs> so uh so pro- it would probably be like like maybe 25 like you know, I think it'd be it'd be up there be up there wow yeah nice top 10 percent yeah all right and Andrew what about yourself would it be in your own personal 250 it would your own 250 it favorite would. movies I, I I put it at number one hundred. Uh, we're all going with round numbers. Here. Yeah, no, I I just figured it had to well, be a multiple it. of twenty five. What <laughs> <laughs> quarter of it? Yeah, yeah, so so does that be like logically? It's at my fifty then to complete. And the I don't want to say I like it more than Renuk. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like where on the scale does this land, eh? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I'd, 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 like I said, I'd, I'm, I'm, I might put other wilder movies ahead of us, um, but but yeah, yeah. I'd, um, how about yourself, Darren? Probably not, actually. Which is, uh, and I, I say wow. that as somebody who loves the movie. I know I'm ruining. I'm literally ruining Christmas. You've ruined Christmas. Christmas. That's, that's, that's it. Yeah, I went for yeah, 50, just, 125, yeah, like like two hundred and forty-seven was right there, Darren, and you couldn't even do that. Um, no, I mean, I, I love I love lots of Wilder movies. Um, I probably like more of the unconventional ones. Like, I obviously love Double Indemnity. I kind of prefer it to this. I kind of like Ace in the Hole uh, a bit more mm-hmm. than I like this, for example. I think this is fantastic. I think it's a joy to watch, um, not to jump to the next question. But it wouldn't make my own personal, entirely subjective 250 favorite movies ever, uh, which I don't feel is a major insult to it. No. I suspect Billy Wilder, Wilder isn't, you know particularly insulted wherever he is right now and um, there, there, there's probably there, i mean there's there's definitely things wrong with the movie i guess that like we'll probably sort of get into and be interested to find the kind of like the things maybe that 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 didn't kind of or whether it was just that they weren't as good as the 250 yeah I mean, I mean like i mean like i feel yeah. like 250 you, like you can be a movie that has no real flaws to it and might not be one of my 250 or not beyond the 250 ever. like jaws for some <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect movie that's not on love, and it's not like that it's, it's not like people are unaware still. of this movie Jaws and, and somehow it's not on it, it makes like no every sense every time I'm on this podcast I just get infuriated by something you tell me is yeah. on the 250 and I get so annoyed Jaws. Yeah. Jaws. Yeah. No. We no, covered it very early on and it just immediately disappeared. It was one of the luckiest hits we had back in those early we, days. We also covered we Robocop, it. but that, that, <laughs> that's never been on the. Uh, <laughs> the two. <My> lads. <laughs> uh, all right. And then finally, before we jump into the spoiler zone, uh, before we got to talk about the movie in more depth, Redux, if listeners have not seen some like it hot and let's assume that they're listening to this podcast live on christmas day would you recommend that they pause the podcast right now gather the family around have some mulled wine or some is it glue vine is what's the name of the glue vine glue vine have some glue vine uh sorry i may have an i i I think i talked over reader how do you actually pronounce it exactly like you said glue vine oh grand so gather the family around, have some hot chocolate, some glue vines, some mulled wine and watch, you know, some like it hot uh, with the warm radiating glow of the local television set. Would you recommend that, Renak? I think you could not spend Christmas any other way. And, and Charlene, what about yourself? Well, you just sold it to us so well there. Darren. Yeah. The wine and your glowing fire. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is the perfect, especially for the day that we are currently living, which is Christmas <laughs> Day. 
2021. <laughs> Ongoing. Um, I think yeah. it is. It is in perpetuity. Um, exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> Perfect. I, I love the implication, by the way, that if you don't have a fire, it, it's, it's just don't watch. Yeah, it's just ruined. Yeah. Or any glue fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like if you have hot chocolate or kind of, you know, mold wine, but no glue vine, no. <laughs> oh. Watch Dublin Denver. I was going to say. Like a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, and Andrew, what about? I th- oh, I th- yeah, I think in, in like, um, I, I, I think I've seen somewhere that if you live in like a mobile home or something that Santa can still get in, like in spite of you not having a chimney that but it just has to have some sort of a pipe on like the in the Santa Claus where he comes exactly down the fish. that's how it works. I think yeah, so. That is, <laughs> yeah. that is, that... Um, would would I recommend that people watch this? So somebody has just gotten in. How uh, did we get on to like? How did we get on to the Santa Claus in a trailer? I, I thought that was setting up something. We were no, we, like, we we were talking about having having a fire on and like oh, okay. say okay, uh, like you 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 wouldn't have a fire on if if you lived in in a, in a mobile home. You might be okay, outside. Sorry, sorry maybe, I missed that yeah. connection. Oh, sorry, no, it wasn't very obvious. But I would recommend it if um, if you're a young person. And you've gotten a new device and you say, oh, wow, they have a podcast app. And now you're <laughs> listening to us. Um, and and you, um, you've you seen uh, Trolls uh, World Tour. Um, you've seen Scooby. Um, and you don't... Scoob. Scoob, sorry. Um, but you fancy, like, um, you're not sure about um, black and white movies. Uh, watch them. Yeah, put down your device and go into the sitting room. Thank um, you, Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah, and I'm imagining it's mostly young people who haven't seen this. I'd, it'd be, be because of how kind of um, uh, how much play I think it's had kind of in our childhood. Um, and not just with kind of um, movie buffs. So yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd absolutely recommend you go um, see it. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe very contemporary audiences will 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 not warm to it as much as we did, and maybe they will. I don't know. Um, what do you What do you think, Darren? Um, well, I think that's something we're talking about in the spoiler zone. But yeah, I think right. I think this is amazing. I think this is just a joy from beginning to end. I think it's a big, warm smile of a movie. Um, like, and we like it's it's like we've already talked about how. The, the thing that some of us do, myself and Charlene, apparently, with Billy Wilder, is we gravitate towards the dark, scary ones that have a very pessimistic view of human nature and the human condition and how terrible absolutely everybody who lives in this world is. Um, it's kind of interesting that that same mind also produced this, which is, you know, I mean, I think a very warm and surprisingly loving and surprisingly humanist piece of cinema that is probably perfect for Christmas. And I say that as the one person on this podcast who did not care for It's a Wonderful Life. So, yeah, that's that's reactions are great. Charlene hasn't just learned something she hates about the 250. She's learned something she hates about me on this particular podcast. With that in mind, we'll segue neatly. I'd I'd like to say I'd recommend people watch it on telly on Christmas Day. I think because it's great to kind of get up and get a like a drink or a mince pie or like a slice of cake or something like that. Um, it's like an, an, an ideal way to, to, to break up a movie as much as people don't like ads. Sorry, Darren, I interrupted you there. 
No, no, no. In the middle of a segue. I think we, okay, we haven't lost Charlene. Okay, cool. I was worried Charlene had hung up in outrage. Darren's, Darren got a segue for Christmas. <laughs> He's like, out of my... <laughs> it's a wonderful life. No, of course. Bye-bye. Right, with that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. I'm through with love. I'll never fall again. Said a doo-doo love. Don't ever call again, for I must have you on no one. And so I'm through with love. Spoiler zone, Christmas 2021. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible podcast. <laughs> with so, great guests. Surely- Great guess. Um, <laughs> terrible, terrible taste, but great guess. Um, so, Charlene, what is Sub Like It Hot about for you? Great question. Why am I never prepared for that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think, I think what Sub Like It Hot is about for me is people figuring themselves out in lots of different ways and each other, but also just about identity and growing up, I think, within your own skin. And it's hilarious. I think it is. It is hilarious. I think that's a very important it's note a, to have about it. It's a it's cautionary about... tale about trying to escape the mob in Miami. <laughs> that's really it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a terrible plan. Um, <laughs> what? Get off anywhere I mean... on the way to Miami. Like <laughs> Washington D.C. would have been a perfect stop. Like I, I, I don't imagine there are many mobsters in in like the nation's capital. Home of law and order. Um, maybe I'm wrong yeah. about that. No, absolutely nothing suspect. I mean, you know, this is the same time. You know, this is only what I think twenty years after Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So I'm sure he's sorted all that stuff out by now, right? <laughs> of course. Well, um, they 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 don't own the records in Washington. Is more more what I meant. The the <laughs> the the, um, the friends of Italian opera don't they, <laughs> they don't have as much of a foothold there. Um, uh, all right, well, let's actually, yeah, okay, so let's come back to, because Charlene mentioned something there that I think yeah. Andrew kind of alluded to early on, which we'll maybe come back to in a second. So let's talk about the least, the, the kind of the, the more goofy, silly stuff, the, the Italian mafia stuff, <laughs> um, which is just kind of like in this movie, like from the start, from the opening scenes of this movie, which I kind of love and adore mm-hmm. about it, is that very like, this is a mo- very 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 dignified movie. very restrained yeah it, it's very it's like jared leto's performance in house of gucci it's the most sensitive portrayal of italian culture i've seen <laughs> since since then mr um, mozzarella's but, funeral <laughs> yeah um what's that line from from david sims review of house of gucci it's like jared leto wandered in off the cover of a, like a takeaway pizza box oh. um, it's basically... i've yet to see house of gucci uh even though it's a month come out but yeah <laughs> I don't hate it, but it, yeah, it's it's not a particularly sensitive or nuanced portrayal <laughs> of any of the people involved in it, um, as as a, you might expect from a Ridley Scott movie. Um, I say loving Ridley Scott, but I think like to, to, to that opening sequence is fascinating because again, this is a movie about people in drag, and you could make an argument that the movie itself is a movie in drag in that it begins 
as a throwback kind of gangster movie. It takes place in 1929 Chicago. It's shot in black and white, so it looks very much like a classical kind of Hayes Code gangster movie. You have the casting, uh, which includes, you know, people like George Raft, uh, Pat O'Brien, and Georgie Stone, all associated with gangster films in the 1930s. Um, Apparently, Wilder wanted to get Edward G. Robinson to play a role. He couldn't, so he got the next best thing. Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> yes, which I kind of admire. Who'd also played kind of supporting roles uh, with his father, again, in the late 30s and into the 40s. And again, all of this stuff is very pointed because you have the, the character played by Robinson flipping a coin over and over again. And at one point, George Raft calls it a cheap trick. That's the same thing that Raft did in the 1932 controversial gangster film Scarface. So it's very much kind of very self-aware and very playful. So it takes this setup of, you know, men with machine guns chasing each other through the streets of 1930 Chicago and going to speakeasies. And then becomes this weird story about men who dress up as women, go on the lam, uh, fall in love and kind of, you know, end up kind of riding off into the sunset, being accepted for who they are because in a, the movie's, you know, fantastic closing line, which is apparently written as a placeholder by Wilder and Diamond until they thought of something better. Nobody's perfect. And I kind of love that the movie does that because it feels like it's now to be fair. All of this is entirely circumstantial. Wilder and Diamond would both dispute this reading whatsoever. The black and white, as we discussed, was due to the makeup. The period setting uh, was because they decided that if they're putting Curtis and Lemon in costume, it would be less distracting if everybody else was also wearing period costume. And the gangster setting is because Wilder, and again, like we've talked on this podcast before about Wilder as a writer who is very like problem focused. So he will reverse engineer the script to be what he needs it to be. Um, so he's like, yeah, I need a, something that will force men to wear women's clothing. Uh, it has to be something serious. So what if they witnessed a murder? Uh, and that would be the motivation that would get them into women's clothing do, for this gooky comedy. Do people think that that was kind of that this was a good engineering job? You know, <laughs> as, as in kind of a farce is kind of a um, like when it when it the the when it's kind of done traditionally and well, it's kind of like um, clockwork with all these sort of moving parts that um, all like slowly become a disaster. Um, do, 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 do people feel like that, that this, this movie does that? I mean, or, or, or was there a sense in which, in which Wilder could have kind of worked harder at, come of, at, at some of the conceits? Um, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think it's a pretty perfect one. I mean, it's sort of, um, there's actually quite a while until it actually kicks off and they're in mm-hmm. Florida or they're on the train. And every time I watch it, I'm a little bit surprised because I just kind of feel like there's five minutes at the start and then they're in drag and that's that. But uh, <laughs> but it does kind of take its time setting it all up. And I think it pays off because it does make total sense. And then even when they do get to Florida, all the little things coming together make sense for me. Uh, and then the final act where uh, I know we're in spoiler zone, so I can say it, but like when Spats. The 10th it, Italian uh, opera convention. Yeah, well, like that's um, I think all that kind of pans out really well as well. I think like um, mechanically, I think the screenplay works really well, in my opinion. I did did like the 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 opera, um, even, even even though it, it was it was kind of the um it, yeah, it was it was it was good. Did 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 you think it was very funny, um, Darren? 
do um do you think they should be um uh commented? Um no. I don't know if their screenplay was rigor letterous enough uh for me there to be honest. Um no I like some of the notes rang falsetto to me. Very good in that sense. Um yeah. Well it just didn't strike a chord with me, I'm sorry. Um but you know, you, you just can't cello how those things are gonna play out. I, I, yeah. Did, um, I, I do like a good sax farce. I, I, um, I appreciate you not 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 pooching any of my uh <laughs> puns. Um, I don't want to make a song and dance over it to be fair. Um But uh yeah, so okay. Actually I again I don't think this is a problem, but I do think the scripting here is a little looser than I expect from Wilder and Diamond. Uh, where it's just like, hey, um, as as Charlene points out, it often feels like it's like a bunch of episodic sequences that they're like, yeah, this is a great way to do a farce. And it is where it's like, yeah, we're going to spend 30 minutes with them before they get on the train. We're going to spend 30 minutes with them on the train with a bunch of women. And it's going to be crazy. We're going to spend 30 minutes where Tony Curtis is playing Cary Grant in 1929, uh, which, like, again, love the inside baseballness of that, where it's like he's doing an impression of a voice nobody in 1929 could have heard. And you have Jack <laughs> Lemmon saying, nobody talks like that. And I'm like, damn it, movie, you're very clever. I appreciate what you're doing there. Um, and then, like, you have the sheer coincidence of the same gangsters who want them dead in Chicago just happening to come all the way down to Florida <laughs> to the exact same hotel at the exact same time. Um, I kind of like... I, I Here, America's a tiny place. It happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like Sligo. Sligo yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and the, the, yeah, that, that it, 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 it felt kind of... It, it, would, it would be interesting if... I don't know. I I just felt like it could have maybe have been set up. Although I did say earlier on that of of course there would be mobsters in Miami. <laughs> I to to be fair, like the movie does like a lot of like set up legwork for things. Like I love, for example, seeing the person in the wheelchair being pushed by the bellhop before you see like Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon trying to escape disguising themselves as a bellhop pushing a man in a wheelchair. Like, I think there is like good setup and, and kind of payoff there and, and incrementally. But I, I do also, when I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is, this is just four really great sitcom episodes running back to back. And they're really great. They're like really, really, really great. But they're also four separate episodes. Yeah. Um. Is, is that, Am I being unfair, perhaps, Renuk? Is that, like, is that? No, I think it's kind of like it. It, it kind of feels heightened to the point where it almost feels like a cartoon, even with those devices of disguising themselves as the 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 bellboy in the set of heels. I mean, you know, it's it's the level of realism um, that isn't there that you could equate to something like Looney Tunes at the time. So you know. When you abide by those rules, anything goes pretty much. And I think it's for me, it's the gelling of, you know, quite hard hitting gangster stuff to the sweetest side um, completely. And I, I think you never question it, but it is always a surprise when it does happen. And um, yeah, you're not exactly going to question why they're there at that hotel you're just like okay this is going to get interesting now <laughs> yeah this this does is this funny does this move the plot along am i going to be amused by the consequences of this creative decision the answer to all those is yes it's a good choice 
Um, I mean, like, we, we should note, we mentioned the genre transition there. Like, Wilder is very fond of, like, David O. Selznick. Again, this is old classic Hollywood. Like, saying, you know, he asked me about some Like It Hot, and I told him the basic concept of it. He's like, so the Valentine's Day murder. And I said, yes, that's the beginning of the movie. He looked at me and he said, you're crazy. You mean real machine guns and blood in a comedy? And I said, why not? And he says, total failure. And, and yeah, Wilder's and, end of the story is he was wrong. Um, but I do and kind it of... does show blood. Like, I, yeah. I, I think a lot of kind of, um, of those gangster movies would have sort of shied away from that. Yeah. Um, they were afraid of the Hayes Code, but Billy Wilder is not afraid of the Hayes Code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I, I do, I do like that element of kind of subversiveness at play there. And again, Wilder is the person who, if you ask him any of this, he'd dismiss it. He'd say you're reading too much into it. It's just a funny comedy. But there is something kind <laughs> of impish. all the sex comedies. <laughs> it's just like just a comedy. What sex? Who sex? I haven't heard of this sex. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. What what is this thing you speak of? Um yeah, I, I get the sense he might have been being just a little bit facetious when he when he dismisses those readings of his films, but I I like I like that. Like it it feels like he it feels like somebody involved in this knows exactly what they're doing when they're being like we're taking like a sexless, bloodless, haze code stereotypical gangster film and we're going to turn it into this like romantic okay. comedy, <laughs> sex <laughs> comedy. <laughs> Yeah. But like it also makes like the stakes feel really high because Spats is scary. Like these guys are scary yeah. and it's really set up very quickly that they're super dangerous. And I think uh, when they come back into it in the end, they are still scary. They're not like buffoon gangsters. They are still quite like terrifying. And I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be caught by Spats Columbo, I'll tell you. I think that helps. I think that the stakes do kind of feel pretty high because we have that darkness at the start. And I think it's kind of interesting that, like, and again, this is probably a nice segue to talk about the thing that, that Charlene kind of mentioned and Andrew kind of alluded to with it, its handling of gender roles and maybe how that's aged, how it's not aged, all that sort of stuff. But I find it interesting that, like, the movie even seems to paint the gangsters as, like, caricatures of, of masculinity. So things like <laughs> Spats is named after his shoes. Yeah. And they are always, like, perfectly white and perfectly maintained. And he's really sensitive about how good they look. And he has one of his goons who will, like, lace them <laughs> up for him. And, like, he's talking about, like, while he's being very sensitive about how good his shoes look, he's talking about how little Bonaparte's, like, he's, he's, he's not really got it here. He's not really a man anymore because he feels really sad that Toothpick died. What a, what a big sissy he is. Have you tied my, my wonderful little white shoes there? while you're down there that sort of thing i find interesting that like even the gangsters seem to be like precious about their appearance in a way that seems to parody conventional hollywood masculinity and, and kind of that sort of thing is that well, am i reading too you much could, you could argue that it's a it's a it's a social commentary in how clothes um define the person that they're in or the identity um from spats to a pair of heels but uh you know we could we could we could unpick that but uh we we'll probably probably be there a while yeah well clothes come into it so much and like it's it's uh gender but it's also class and you have just like what's his name uh dressing up as practically Cary grant you know like that whole thing so it's like class and gender and it's all about clothes you know and, and there's, there's, that uniforms are important oh well, yeah i mean they're there's an argument to be made about like that the 
you know, whatever we want to read about the gender roles in this, like it's notable that when when Joe asks Daphne why he or she would marry a man, what a guy marry a guy, why would you do that? Uh, the response is security. Yes. Um, like, like, like it's it's not like he's making a, a gay marriage argument that people should marry the person that they love. It's like no, you you marry a man because it provides you financial security. That's that's why you do it. That's why marriage exists, right? That's the yeah. logic that underpins it, which is a very cynical, but as as you point out, very class and very economic based kind of commentary. Yeah, uh, which I find interesting. It, yeah, it it's it's an interesting movie as well because like, um. Tony Curtis, and I guess I, like most, if not all, of the um, uh, men in this in this movie are real pieces. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> like, uh, but but it 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 gives you a kind of maybe um, perspective of um, what it's like to 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 be um, uh, for. It 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 it's a kind it's a kind of a way of uh, maybe demonstrating to men what what it's like to to be to uh, to be kind of under that gaze you know or to 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 be treated like that and to be smacked on the bottom and to to kind of um, have um, yeah or, or or maybe even feel like you don't have the same kind of opportunities and that sort of thing yeah it was. I, yeah, I think I think it's it kind of goes after a lot of different stereotypes and like even the way like the women talk about wanting to get married to the rich men and like you know there is a lot going on with um with gender and class and just that general kind of um what people are searching for in each other and what people are searching for in themselves or what they expect of themselves. Um like sugar is obsessed with like, you know, um life handing her terrible things and she always gets the fuzzy end of the lollipop she also just kind of makes really Nobody's choices perfect. like yeah. going out absolute dickhead who's clearly a phony you know um so i i think it it asks so many questions of its characters and the world that they inhabit that i think that's why it ages well well maybe we're all going to ask each other that question but like i feel it ages better than i would have expected yeah. Yeah. Because it does ask a lot of different questions and they are rooted in identity and class and our economics rather than, you know, poking fun at things or people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's that moment where like, and it happens very deliberately within one scene of another, but the bit where Jack Lemon gets in the elevator, and by the way, the way in which it's shot is one of those great uh, innuendos from uh, Wilder, where they get in the elevator the elevator arrow points upwards. <laughs> it stops suddenly and it pushes downwards. And then you have Jack Lemon coming out going, well, I never, uh, which is like one of the great, it's, it's just a wonderful piece of like visual storytelling. Um, but I, you have that sequence. And then you have the sequence where Tony Curtis is kind of menaced by the bellhop. Who's like, Hey honey, don't Ooh. worry. I got a key. Mm. I don't worry about leaving it unlocked. And like you have the two of them kind of conversing about that. And I mean, I'm not going to argue that this is like, you know, Tootsie, where the central thematic point is, well, look, they become better people as a result of this. But it, I do like that the movie's like, no, it, it's a being a woman is, is more difficult than being a man. And you have like Jack Lemon going, you know, I, I, I just want to be the beast again. Like, 
you know, you're prey and, and they're the beast. And it's like, yeah, I want to be the beast again, which is very much an acknowledgement of this stuff without ever kind of getting maybe hand ringy or, or kind of heavy handed or earnest about it. It's just like, no, this is the way the world is. And it's kind of terrible, um, which, again, very wilder point, perhaps, in, in a comedy like this. I think you could probably kind of say with Marilyn Monroe that it's a sort of like a stereotype that it's the kind of uh blonde uh bimbo because she's kind of describing herself as like um uh, she's kind of saying like that she's thick um but I, but i but i think her her character is kind of a, um a fool for love as yeah. in, as in that um that she makes these kind of um uh poor choices not not because of kind of necessarily kind of like a mental deficit but because of an an emotional kind of um naivety and that that really kind of um it it feels kind of more like tragic than um uh, like strictly foolish you know yeah. yeah yeah she says it herself like she's attracted to a certain type of man who's terrible yeah <laughs> Uh, and then Tony Curtis is like, uh, you rang? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I've got a great, like, terrible man for you right here. <laughs> shocks that Tony Curtis doesn't become a um, a bass-playing uh, millionaire. <laughs> like, um, I suppose he only has one bass. Um, <laughs> and they did try to kind of explain why are there bullet holes in, yeah. <laughs> um, in Josephine's bass and in Junior's. Um, well, uh, we probably we'll talk about Marlon Monroe in a moment, actually, because I think there's a lot, lot to unpack there. This is the big Marlon Monroe movie on the 250, arguably the biggest movie of her career. We'll come back to that in a second, because I, I think the gender stuff is is interesting and in trying to unpack it. Because I think one of the interesting things about Some Like It Hot is that it's a movie that like has a legacy where, like, you can point to almost any TV show or any movie and there is some variation on Some Like It Hot. So like, you know, White Chicks is is kind of like Some Like It, is a riff on Some Like It Hot. Um, you know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine did a riff on Some Like It Hot where it's like, oh, Quark is going to wear a dress this week. And almost invariably, all of those movies are terrible. I don't remember that. It was it. There are good. There's a good reason for that. But they're they're all terrible and they all are terrible for the reasons that you expect them to be terrible in that they are generally really homophobic and really transphobic and all this sort of stuff. And it's interesting that Some Like It Hot, despite being made in 1959, you know, I again, there's a lot of debates about the, the movie's legacy and, and how well it's aged. So I guess maybe throwing it out to you guys, but I, I think it's interesting that this has, while it has some flaws, I would argue aged significantly better than a lot of the movies ripping it off in the years that followed. Um, what do we think of, of like how it's aged in terms of, of things like that? Is it is it timeless? If it is it of its time? So Renuk, maybe I. Well, I think it's it's you know I think a lot of the gender issues still um, hold water. Um, definitely from a central thematic point of view of you know dressing in uh, you, you know seeing things from the other side. Um, and from their point of view and experiencing how belittling that is and what their journeys are, um, you know, from a male point of view, I think that's a, you know, that it, it still kind of holds water. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's when it comes down to sort of like the history of 
I suppose, trans representation in cinema, you know, the butt of the joke is always the man in the dress. And, you know, while I think that is the, the essential joke and USP of, of this film, it's, you know, I think it, it follows through with those themes nicely so that it starts as this joke and it kind of laughs with the audience in terms of, yes, this, these are men in dresses and this is inherently funny, but that wanes quickly and then it, it gets to the heart of that matter. So I, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's problematic because it's a trend that Hollywood has played on, you know, to this day that is, that is difficult for trans representation because of that. But I think this film does a good, solid job for that time to address some of those uh, more gender-specific points of view, I think. Yeah, I mean, like again, we'll, we'll probably come back to this in a moment. But like, it, it's notable. Like, the movie does have moments that have aged. They're not not aged poorly, but moments where you kind of go, ah, eh, maybe a bit too much. But they're always moments that you're like, this would one hundred percent exist in a major studio comedy today. Like, so for example, when um, Jack Lemmon is flirting with Marlon Monroe and they're having drinks together, and it's like, oh, it's a surprise party. Well, you won't see what the surprise, and you're like oh but that would absolutely be something that would get into a modern comedy today um whereas you know i mean so i i maybe that sense is kind of interesting to talk about but i i think yeah one of the interesting seconds sorry uh but like within seconds of seeing them in their dresses um first of all you get to see them admire and try to learn from how Marilyn Monroe is walking. So I know they're obviously admiring her from a male point of view, but also like with that little bit of like, oh, look how she does that. I can't do that. And then also um, I just love um, how he just will not accept Geraldine as his name, Daphne. And like within <laughs> seconds, it's like within seconds, you're seeing him, particularly him, like really enjoying this. And I think that's so important because it, it's immediate. But then throughout the whole rest of the film, all the moments that stick out for me in my head with this film are just moments of pure joy where he's just all over being a woman and just enjoying it. Yeah. And, you know, all he just becomes a woman immediately. And I think for me, the stuff that doesn't age as well is the kind of um, the more pervy Joe stuff like yeah. taking her yeah. up lying to her that stuff doesn't age great but you're, you are also supposed to know he's an arsehole so it's not so bad but to me any of the kind of um cross-dressing stuff i i think i don't know whether it was deliberate or whether there's just a big joyful heart at the soul of a uh, diamond and wilder but i just think it is why it doesn't it doesn't age badly for me yeah i did i did oh sorry no i was going to say like, like the yeah the the tony curtis stuff didn't and and there is a way to to do kind of what tony curtis does in this movie and kind of get away with it like i think that like an actor like bill murray would be able to kind of be like a complete um asshole. unlikable human being unlikable and yes you 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 kind of come 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 away from it thinking like that there is some kind of soft center to him. I think with Tony Curtis, it he it, it, it doesn't really feel redeemed, and yeah. you you, you no, wonder, like but, at all. But you also like, but the thing like that that's the difference between Murray and and kind of between Murray and Curtis is that like Murray, you're like I know this guy is terrible. Curtis is like this guy's terrible, but he's also really charming and like smiles and funny and yeah. makes good jokes. Um, like. 
I, I think like with Curtis, you kind of you're on side in a way that makes you uncomfortable. Whereas with Murray, you're always kind of at a distance. Perhaps he always yeah. seems like. Um, I think like to to Charlene's point, actually, I did actually. Okay. Yeah. That 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 it's sorry. I I I um maybe maybe that's just me. I I think it's 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 um like there's something kind of scuzzy about Curtis. Uh, um. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I he's think Curtis, but he still feels like romantic lead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Girl. He does. Like, yeah. yeah. Whereas like when, when Murray hooks up with Sigourney Weaver at the end of Ghostbusters, you're like, something is very wrong here. Um, <laughs> to the point where like, you know, when you get to Ghostbusters 2 and they're not together anymore, Darren has watched Ghostbusters recently because of reasons that I don't want to go I've into. I've also watched Ghostbusters. But- yeah. But when you get back to, uh, when you get back to Ghostbusters 2 and they broke it up, you're like, oh, this makes sense. Um, like, whereas at the end of this, Tony Curtis and Marlon Monroe get together and you're like, yeah, this is the most natural possible ending yeah. of this story. I guess and I mean more I think... Groundhog Day. Kind okay. of, yeah, that, uh... yeah. But I mean, he also like Groundhog Day is about Bill Murray growing as a person in a way that I don't think this is about Joe growing as a no, person. No, he doesn't grow. I would like <laughs> no. if she had ended up with Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Jack Lemmon is so lovely. Yeah. And who doesn't want to end up with Jack Lemon? He's so lovely. And it, that would have been real growth for everybody. <laughs> and Joe was left behind. <laughs> I agree. Just standing, waving, <laughs> yeah, waving on the dock as they drive away in the speedboat. And I, I, I love the kind of transformation of, um, uh, of, of, of Jerry to Daphne as well. But that, that, that like Charlene was mentioning, because she, uh, Jerry is this kind of, um, a kind of, uh, anxious um, uh, person and he's just kind of like panicking all the time and what are we going to do and how could you do this and 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 then be- becomes this completely different person like, yeah, like and, a, and, and there's joy in that person exactly <laughs> yeah. and there's so, such a joy in that yeah um, where, whereas for 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 Joe becoming Josephine. I don't know if there's that much he kind of learn. He kind of becomes it. this very like prim and proper woman. That's why I always like that they that even their female characters are very, very distinctly different. Whereas yes. like the Playboy Joe becomes the buttoned down, buttoned up, Matronly. very prim and proper matron and Daphne is this kind of like I think uh, Tur- uh Curtis called uh called Jack Lemon, it was like he became a little tart or something. It was like <laughs> this kind of like He was very proud of his walk. He was very <laughs> yeah. proud of his walk, apparently. Um but I mean I mean I did actually because because I none of like again I'm always kind of cautious about talking about this sort of stuff in the podcast because myself and Andrew are two straight white guys. Um so I did actually search out some trans Sorry. No, but yeah, fair point. <laughs> yeah, relatively speaking. Right. Um but I did. I kind of did kind of look up. We'll come back to Tony Curtis in a second. But I did actually look up some perspectives from people, um, actually like trans uh, commentators in there. So Natalie Troop like has written a great deal about this, um, and she makes the argument that yeah, that you can, if you want to. And again, there there are perfectly valid readings, as you point out, of the whole men in a dress, social scare, moral panic stuff there. And that's if people see it, that's that's the way it is. It's not invalid. But Natalie Troops made the argument that you can arguably see some like it hot as a coming out narrative yeah. for Jerry. Yeah. Uh, because like 
the the thing is it's jerry who is the first one who seizes on the idea even before their lives are in danger of wouldn't it be great if we like dressed up as as women to do this thing i mean we we have an economic reason to do so but wouldn't it be great also if we just we just did it um and and joe's like no no we're not we're never doing that Uh, but also joe's approach is much more mercenary where for joe he's just slipping on an identity and slipping out of it like he invents a separate third identity uh when he gets to miami in order to try and sleep with marlon monroe whereas uh jerry on the other hand is like no i'm i'm daphne i'm i'm all in on daphne this is this is i'm committed to this character that i'm building um and i do kind of like the argument is that you have like things like even the closing scene where Daphne and Osgood kind of have that conversation together uh Troop makes the point that it's very easy to read that and again likely entirely unintentional particularly in the context of yeah. 1959 coming well, from Billy Wilder and an ILA Diamond you- but it's possible to read that as a coming out scene um where she's trying to explain to her partner that you know she is or she at one point was a man um and it's like no we can't have kids and it's like oh no that's that's grand and then finally the big reveal of well this is the thing about me that i don't want to admit but i feel i have to admit to you if we are going to be together um and oscar just responding to that with it doesn't really matter it's you, nobody's perfect the ideal um, coming out yeah. <laughs> complete yeah. acceptance <laughs> yeah which which is kind of kind of amazing and again amazing. for a movie in 1959 from a from a director as cynical about human nature as Wilder, and I know it's meant to be a punchline. I know it's meant to be a joke, but yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. it's handled with enough warmth that it doesn't feel like it's punch like it doesn't feel like the joke is on you know Daphne if if Daphne is Daphne no. or not Jerry exactly. Which the is joke is on all those yeah yeah. I, I, the, the, the I, joke I, is yeah the joke is just that it, this is a really unusual situation to see in a movie <laughs> like this yeah. Um, and I I I think that it's it's often. I, I well I don't know how true this is, but it feels like it's maybe often movies that are subversive that are able to to stand the test of time, um, far better. And it feels like Wilder is very good at doing that, whether he realizes it or not. <laughs> I guess, yeah. which is is kind of amazing. And we should probably talk just a little bit about Tony Curtis before we talk about Marlon Monroe because Curtis is is interesting as well. And I suspect when we talk about subversive, didn't have much good things to say about Marilyn Monroe. In fact, a lot a, lo- a lot of people didn't really kind of. They, they, well, we'll they, talk about some of Wilder's comments about Monroe in particular because Wilder, yeah, while while we we kind of danced around some of the stuff with Wilder, I think when we talked about Wilder before, it becomes no, a lot they, harder to do that. They're very when we talk unkind, about Wilder and Monroe. kind of about Marilyn yeah. Monroe. I think that like every everybody feels like. Um, and I I think we feel uneasy about those sort of descriptions because it's generally like she was a complete brat, um, the, that she wasn't kind of uh, professional. Um, I think the, it's a shame because the the she was like a, um, such a hot commodity, but very kind of troubled, and that there the shame that there wasn't more sort of like um, sympathy or. Um, kind of concern rather than just yeah. um or leeway towards those those issues that she may have and especially when wilder said that i don't have a problem with marlon monroe marlon has a problem with marlon that's pretty right. cold and aware of what those issues are okay yeah oh we okay okay let, let's let's talk about billy wilder on marlon monroe um because, yeah, again, we kind of like one of the big knocks against Wilder, generally speaking, has been the argument that you can read his work and his um, public comments as being misogynistic. 
And I think in the past, we've generally been like, yeah, look, if, if it's there, it's there, but I, more misanthropic, perhaps. But when you get to Monroe, it feels really specific pointed. and really personal and really pointed and really unpleasant. So you have, like, um, he, when asked directly about Marlon Monroe, his response was, you want me to talk about Marlon? My God. I think there have been more books on Marlon Monroe than on World War II, and there's a great similarity. It was a very complex thing working with her because she had tremendous problems with herself. She was on the edge of deep depression, whatever you want to call it, at all times. There was always a question which you sweated out. Is she going to show up? Is she going to show up on time? Is she going to live through a scene? Is she going to finish the picture? It was a very nerve-wracking thing if you've got $8 million in this enterprise. But when it's done, it's all worth it. It's the old thing I said, you don't know, 400 years ago. Look, if we wanted somebody to be on time and to know the lines just perfectly, I've got an old aunt in Vienna. She's going to be there at five in the morning and never miss a word. But who wants to look at her? She's a very great actress. Better Marlon late than anybody else on time. The question is whether Marlon is a person at all or one of the greatest DuPont products ever invented. She has breasts like granite and a brain like Swiss cheese. It is better for Monroe not to be straightened out. The charm of her is two left feet. Otherwise, she'd just be in slightly inferior Eva Marie Saint. So, yeah. Yikes. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And he didn't fight her to the rap party either. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the story, and again, this is the story that he likes to tell, um, or he liked to tell, about, like, how long it took to do particular scenes because Monroe would have difficulty uh, remembering her lines and meeting her marks. Again, she'd show up. She had drug problems, drinking problems during this. Um, she was three months pregnant uh, when the movie was filming and I believe she had a miscarriage immediately afterwards as well. Um, there was like, there was one scene um, that it took 83 takes um, to film. And that was a scene where her, her line consisted of three words. It's me, sugar me comma sugar that's all she had to say and she had to like she continued she couldn't get it right so wilder at one point had to write the line on a blackboard and keep it off camera so that she could remember to say it um after 16 takes she starts bursting into tears so we have to redo the makeup after 53 i take her aside and i say marlin don't worry and she says worry about what uh, such a strange strange girl um, like that sort of thing is kind of the atmosphere that you had, I think, with Wilder and kind of Monroe on set. Um, That's so, yeah, very it's, upsetting. It's it's it, it sounds that yeah, everything to do with either medication and depression and that kind of fuzzy lack of focus, all snowballing under the pressure of this film and this atmosphere where it seemed like all members of that cast around her and director were not on her side um it's it's harrowing to hear it because you do you do naturally sympathize with her in those situations in those situations trying to visualize how can you nobody's perfect that line um because unless you've you've got some very serious issues that are causing your memory and your brain to just not not function in those moments under pressure and I, I don't think it's just this movie, though. It, it's like the the people had unkind things to say in, in like All About Eve that we covered. You know, Laurence Olivier kind of, uh, as as well as kind of Tony Curtis from this movie, but I think Laurence Olivier as well, kind of in interviews, 
was asked about and I think he was capable of saying one or two nice things but mostly it was kind of did was it's the same kind of report about it which by all like um accounts was fairly true but that that is very kind of unsympathetic um I mean, I mean it okay this is probably the the time to talk about Monroe like as as an actor like cuz this is the like as a screen icon one of the great american actors icons um one of the most um you know well-known faces in in media one of the most distinctive voices uh, at icon of culture um and like it again just to give a sense of like the scale of her career which was relatively uh short cut very very tragically uh short again only a couple of years uh after this as well you know she was baptized by amy semple mcpherson analyzed by anna freud befriended by carl sandberg and edith sitwell romanced by both jack and bobby kennedy painted by william de koenig taught acting by michael chekhov and lee strasberg photographed by Richard Avedon, Cecil Beaton, and Henry Cartier-Bresson, managed to work with, twice, with Jack Jack Houston, Billy Wilder, and Howard Hawks, and once each with Howard Cukor, Joseph Bankowitz, and Laurence Olivier. The first Playboy centerfold ever, and one of the first women to own her own production company. A nudist and a champion of free love long before those concepts emerged into national consciousness. Um, she was one of the like icons of the Second World War, both a teenage war bride and an actual Rosie the Riveter, where she spent long days working on the fuselage varnishing room at the radio plane plant in Burbank. Her first like photographs, uh, professional photographs, were taken in the spirit of like morale boosters for foreign soldiers. Uh, her famous appearance in Korea remains the standard against which any sex symbol sent to entertain the troops is measured, popping her glorious platinum head out of a camouflage touring tank, appearing on stage in a purple sequin dress. She was also the first celebrity to talk openly about childhood sex, uh, childhood sexual abuse, um, which, you know, is something that we perhaps talk about more openly today. But in, 19, in the 1950s, for an actor to talk about that so candidly was unheard of, and again it's 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 a remarkable like figure and and you read about her um and like the the stories that people tell like she was there's some belief that she was dyslexic but she would go out of her way to like buy the classics of of literature she would try and read war and peace and she would like spend like lock herself in her room with like you know bottles of bourbon um, and copies of War and Peace and just try to get through it. And I think generally... Uh, and find, her, kind of, you, find you, yourself unable to do it. You mentioned like Strasbourg and, 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 and Chekhov. They, 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 and just generally an attraction to kind of the highbrow with like the, the marriage to Arthur Miller. And, um, and and again, like the fact that even he trying to, to understand her as well. But yeah, like it, it's it's a really tragic kind of story. And again, watching this movie, I couldn't help but think of all that because there's it's hard not to watch sugar particularly in that scene where she's talking to joe in the bathroom about how she makes all these bad choices and she knows they're bad choices and she just gets stuck in this cycle of, of doing it over and over again and to to kind of not see some of that like monroeness on screen and playing through and how uncomfortable that in, in like a movie that is otherwise like joyous and happy and celebratory and amazing and warm and loving to, to find myself like we talk like when we talked about platoon uh, and like on this podcast, when we talk about like male actors, we talk about like fetishizing 
like methodness and fetishizing Jared Leto, um, like mailing inappropriate things to his cast members. But, you know, the, the whole like, I, you know, I suffered for my art um, and, you know, that makes my art great and all that sort of stuff. And there's a weird almost kind of like inverse and undoubtedly gendered and I, I suspect highly sexist thing at play with Monroe where it's like you look at her and you, you can't help but filter it through that that kind of all the stuff that you know, all the baggage that you have. And it, it's kind of she's this tragic figure even in these comedies. I, I kind of I, I don't know how I parse that. I kind of just want to throw that to the group. If if anybody else sees that, if that resonates with anybody else. or well, It's certainly very any... poignant. Sorry. I was going to say when she portrays melancholy in this film, she portrays it with every part of her. And it's it's really affecting. And, and even at, towards the end when she's singing, I'm through with love. And it's such a sad performance like it's just it's really it's a really good performance um and it i just think she has a really great way of bouncing from one to the other as an actor i and i think you're right Aaron. i think it's really hard to you know not to go oh look at that darkness there in her eyes because we know that she has a dark background or whatever and it is hard not to do that but i also think as a performer like sugar is such a brilliantly realized character that could easily have just been you know, the bimbo and she isn't, I mean, she is the quintessential bimbo and she's constantly referring to herself as, as a sort of bimbo. Um, but she is such soul. And I think that's really moving in the performance. And, but yet, you know, she, it's, it's only moments because I think it's such a sparkling comedic character as well. It doesn't feel like a tragic character as such, but when she gives us those moments of melancholy, she sells it Nobody's perfect. out of it. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the the scene where she gets the phone call, and she's she goes from that very happy place to misery in the space of a minute, and it's it's just how she, her whole face sinks into depression and sorrow and melancholy, um, in a very naturalistic way, and I think that's that's probably why people don't really give her the, a lot of credit on it because she's playing a bimbo. Somebody who cannot see that these two uh, women are men in women's clothing, but um, it's the it's the humanity she gives her that I think is kind of overlooked because I think people see the role rather than the character, and that that is seen is criticised mainly through a very uh, misogynistic point mm-hmm. of view on bimbos. No, and I, I think she is phenomenal here. Like she's she's top build here. Um, she's she's oh, yeah. the star of this movie, which is as I think she's. I think she has a great wit as well, which yeah. really kind of sells the jokes. You, you have this kind of um, and like I think Wilder Wilder to his credit, he acknowledged that she had some of the best timing he had ever seen. Um, Absolutely. And now, to be fair, he was probably making some aside about how she was always late for filming, <laughs> um, but he, he did he did concede that she had the best timing he had ever seen. Um, all right. Uh, in terms of Monroe, is there anything else we want, or any, or Sugar, or, or kind of any of that? Anything else you want to kind of talk about with the character and the actor there? I mean, I do want to talk about the wham 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 of it all, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that. That's probably that being discussed part. enough. <laughs> yeah. Was like, what, what, what was what what was that? It's just with the 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 the, the um. Like... <laughs> 
Yeah. Why does it... everybody have trombones? Did everybody get trombones yeah, for Christmas? Yeah, everyone got them for Christmas. Did you not? It's, <laughs> dude, no, it would be the most obvious um, uh, uh, comment on Marilyn Monroe is just how good she is to look at. But um, I think I, it merits I, discussion. Yeah, like it's <laughs> it it, <laughs> it 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 is just the uh, you, you know like it, the 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 curvaceousness. I remember watching her as an adolescent, especially as I got older. You know, and just feeling like this is what a sexy woman's body should look like, or or, or that I wanted it to look like. And I guess it just kind of, you know, it without really realizing that felt very empowering, even if it was seen through a male point of view. It was just the kind of pure sensuality and charm and bright light of her. Like it's it's right. There is nobody else like her. There's nobody else that you could see in that role at all. Yeah, she she's special kind of stunning. And and she uses her body so nicely. She seems to find real joy in her body and how she, you know, I, I just love how she uses her body. I love that, uh, like, that dress that she's practically nude. I do not know how they got away with that. Yeah. That is still the most stunning thing you will ever see in cinema. <laughs> like, I mean. If, yeah. she, if she... If she didn't have her curves, it would probably fall off. It would have. And then they would have really <laughs> have been in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you mean, nude? What are you talking about? Get your mind out of the gutter. She's just singing. That's all she's doing. Um, she's wearing a dress, a nice dress. Um, but, like, I mean, there's, there is the, the famous story that they tell about, like, the costume fitting for this. And how, like, obviously because the, uh, you know, Jerry and, and kind of... Um, Jerry and Joe are both like wearing women's clothing. They would have had the same tailors that Monroe had. And the story Curtis likes to tell of like a, the tailor measuring um, the kind of like inline on Monroe and, and going, huh, Tony Curtis actually has a better ass than you do. Um, and Marlon Monroe's response to saying, yeah, but he doesn't have tits like these, um, which is kind of, you know, again, kind of with those Feels stories. Feels very like, uh, like a Curtis kind of, you know, uh, altered take on reality kind of story <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> i believe he said she opened her blouse and said well he doesn't yeah. have the, it, it yes yeah, yeah there is, sure there is tony he sure. doesn't have a better arse than her that's a ridiculous thing yeah, to say exactly. taylor was full of nobody's perfect it's like a humble brag story <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a humble brag story come on huh? sorry tony get off it <laughs> we we should we should know again. Sorry, before uh, and and again, there's a really again just because I, I have it in my notes here. Like again, how traumatic the the filming was for everybody involved. Uh, where Monroe, sorry, when Wilder was asked whether he'd ever work with Monroe again after making this movie, <laughs> and keep in mind he had done uh, the Seven Year Itch with her a couple of years earlier. He said, "I've discussed this project with my doctor and my psychiatrist, and they tell me I am too old and too rich to go through this again." Because he lost half a million, apparently, according to him, from how many times she was late and unprofessional. So he attributed that loss to to Marilyn as well. And I think that she had asked him to be in Irma Duce as well. And it, it obviously did not. That part did not go to her. Irma Duce. Um, all right. So, and then let's just talk. A little bit about uh, Tony Curtis, um, since we brought Tony Curtis up and we should probably talk about Tony Curtis a little bit. I find it interesting that you could you could probably make an argument that some of the movie's comfort 
with its its kind of sexual undertones and kind of sexual liberation perhaps comes from Curtis himself who very famously when interviewed with Attitude in 2002 boasted that when he first arrived in Hollywood he had and I quote more action than Mount Vesuvius men women animals um Right. As you do. But Mount Vesuvius has been, you know, fairly dormant. So dormant, it's not exactly man. like the most, <laughs> you know, like, oh. Yeah. But like, I mean, it's also worth noting the following year you had Spartacus, which famously had the whole scene with him and Laurence Olivier talking about whether they prefer, is it oysters or snails? Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, is another thing that's kind of, again, a star playing with their sexual identity on screen in a way that I think is, you know, in the context of late 1950s why, early 1950s why, why snails do people have genitalia that look like snails or what wh- wh- um i get oysters but i'm sorry <laughs> maybe we don't want to interrogate that too much obviously we do i think we want to talk about that <laughs> a key issue yeah i mean it is well, I, I have some quotes from Mr. Curtis, if you want. I mean, you know, he talks about snails and oysters. It's a clever way of, well, I guess they thought it was an artistic way of doing it. I would have much preferred a scene where a little more blatant in his approach, because it would have been a lot more logical and perhaps a lot more realistic. But somebody thought it was kind of fanciful to talk of fish. That's Tony Curtis um, talking about, um, yeah. Oh, wow. About, uh, it was like, yeah. this snail never stayed in its... In its shell, it's like Vesuvius. Uh, um. I mean, that's clear. When he said men, women, and animals, he was obviously talking about snails, right? That's well, clearly what that's, he was referring to. Hopefully, sexiest of all the beasts. I hope these were very big snails. Um, oh, oh, all right. Um, we should we should also note, by the way, that. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> Tony Curtis and a huge snail. <laughs> Merry Christmas and God bless us, everyone. No, because otherwise it just seems kind of cruel and destructive. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, okay. it's always. Should... I, I, what is our position on bestiality? We're against um, it. Right? <laughs> feel, um, yeah, we, we, we're. I feel like we'll we're against. It. I feel that we yeah. don't need a position. <laughs> I don't. Think, I don't think. Yeah. But we should we should note, by the way, that while Jack Lemmon did provide his own voice, uh, Tony Curtis couldn't apparently raise his pitch high enough. So they hired Paul Fries to do the voiceover, uh, who is the voice of Boris Badenoff on television as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludwig von Drake, the unseen philanthropist, the millionaire series and the Pillsbury Doughboy, among many others. Um, he apparently he'd worked with Humphrey Bogart on The Harder They Fall and would do like ADR for Bogart on movies where Bogart was either too busy or didn't care enough to come back to the studio, uh, which I kind of love. So they got this guy, uh, Paul Fries, to dub over kind of Tony Curtis. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about with, with Some Like It Hot? Anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at people that we want to kind of um, discuss? Yeah, how could he turn down a really good pizza pie? The, I think that's food waste. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's and, food waste. And, the, 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 and a brand new negligee. <laughs> There was also the discussion of coleslaw and face, which would also be food yeah. uh, food waste. The, 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 the wife um, of, of the full, former wife of Osgood Fielding, who who um, held her cigarettes between her toes, which was considered as inappropriate by by Fielding's mother. Um, so, <laughs> so inappropriate smoking, inappropriate if you smoking. will. Yeah. Zowie. 
(laughs) (laughs) And what we will note is actually like um, some of the, despite the fact that this is now rightly regarded as a classic, some of the reviews at the time were quite sniffy and it's always kind of fun to go back and look at them. I particularly like the New York Times review uh, from 1959, which, you know, is generally positive, but also includes the line, let's face it, two hours is too long a time to harp on one joke. Uh, We should also note that like, Wilder apparently had a great deal of difficulty when he was doing the test screenings of the movie. Uh, The first one was a disaster. It was shown after Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the Bay Theatre in the Pacific Palisades. To Wilder's horror, the upper middle class audience of people over the age of 60 just sat there, with the exception of a lone man in the front row who roared throughout. Apparently that man was Steve Allen. Uh, Wilder resisted the urge to make drastic changes to the movie, screened it for a bunch of students at, I believe, Berkeley the following week. It was like, yeah, these scores are way through the roof. It's fine. Which I kind of like in terms of like one of those things where Wilder gives the studio exactly what they want within the limits of like what they want in a way that suits him. It's like that thing where he refused to shoot coverage because he he knew that if he shot coverage and they went to the edit, the studio would be able to use the coverage and say, like, no, I just literally have the footage that I want in the movie. Um, so you're going to have to either make me reshoot the movie or accept my cut. I do like, yeah, I ran a test screening. A bunch of kids loved it. It's fantastic. Just release it as is, uh, which is fantastic. All right. So anything else we want to talk about? So Charlene, anything else jumping out of you about Some Like It Hot? Anything we haven't talked about already? No, I mean, no. I think I just said my bit about how joyful it is. Uh, Jack Lemmon. <laughs> We haven't really explored Jack Lemmon, but I would just like to say that he is um, a star and king of all men. That's all. I think it's it's fantastic to note that Frank Sinatra was considered for the role of Jerry, Jack Lemmon's role, which you just cannot see. Yeah, I know. And, 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 And Anthony Perkins as well, who did, in all fairness, eventually the next year did got to wear to, drag. He got to dress up in drag. Yeah. Did. Um, I could see Anthony Perkins more than I could see uh, Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, yeah, Frank Sinatra and Tony Curtis in this Awful. movie together? That's too much toxic masculinity there. You need a Jack Lemon. Break that up. You need it. Oh, sorry. The, the story goes um, obviously different between IAL Diamond and Billy Wilder, but IAL Diamond suggests that. Billy Wilder went to meet with Frank Sinatra and Frank stood him up. But Billy Wilder says he didn't want Frank Sinatra's negative on his, uh, you know, not quoting verbatim, but, you know, didn't want that. I didn't want want his negative stuff, like not showing up when I'm at a meeting waiting for him. That kind of negative stuff. I didn't want that on my set. (laughs) None of that, Frank. You can't dump me. I dump you. (laughs) And you just can't see it because he's such a joyful character or Daphne is such a joyful character and Jack Lemmon is such a joyful uh, manifestation of that character. It just, you cannot see that. We're King of Frank Sinatra. It's madness. Would have been a good Joe. Yeah, I think he'd make a good Joe and maybe Dean Martin um, (laughs) (laughs) as as Jerry if you're going to kind of have it as a a Rat Pack vehicle. John Wayne. Isn't there baggage between uh, Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra anyway? Sort of? well, I mean, there was with Tony Curtis as well. They had had an, like, an, a relationship in the middle of the 40s. And according to Tony Curtis, who again, as we've established, maybe not the most reliable narrator, <laughs> apparently they reignited that relationship while they were on set here as well, um, as you do. 
I mean, like, it, it's worth noting in terms of Lemon, this is Lemon's first collaboration with Wilder. And he go on to make seven more movies with him as well. I think this is also Lemon's first uh, acting Oscar nomination, I think, as well. Um, which is, so this is very much like a star-making turn for Lemon, and I think deservedly so. Oh, yeah. He's, he's so good in it. Uh, this was obviously the first time I'd seen Jack Lemon and... This was my, as we have established pre-Edward Norton, I got such a massive crush on Jack Lemmon. Yeah. I was like, I just want to see every other movie this man has been in. He's just such a, he's so special. Like, I just think there weren't many like him out there. Oh, apologies. I should correct myself. It was his first nomination in a leading role. He'd previously won as a supporting role in Mr. Roberts in 1955. Oh, he won. All right. Yeah. On his first go round. Um, but then he started chasing that lead and he'd have to wait until Save the Tiger in 1973 to win. Right. He's going to be following that Edward Norton trajectory. Just like go <laughs> get, uh, nominated for your first uh, big acting game. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else we're talking about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to Some Like It Hot? Any sequences, um, any beats, any choices? There is uh, one great story, which I will now read verbatim from IMDb's trivia page. Um after the massacre, Spats Colombo kicks the trademark toothpick from Toothpick Charlie's mouth. George Raft was afraid that he would miss and kick Georgie Stone in the head. As a result, he missed his target constantly. After about 10 takes, a now furious Billy Wilder showed Raft how to do it, only to kick Stone in the head. Raft <laughs> proposed that the toothpick be replaced with something else to make the target easier. Accordingly, a nail was painted to look like a toothpick and Raft completed the shot in one take. That's a very Hollywood story. It's like, how do you get a, what do you do if you want a bunch of cows on screen? It's a shot that seems pretty innocuous in that little moment. But uh, poor Georgie Stone getting kicked <laughs> in the head with it by an angry Billy yeah. Wilder. Maybe you could just pull out that shot. You could imagine it could also like kick the pick into his mouth. <laughs> cause well. real problems if, if yeah if, if you don't especially if it was right. a nail painted to look like a toothpick just uh yeah just knock that into his teeth i mean again like wilder uh very famously not maybe not the easiest director to work with um one of the stories where i actually kind of am on wilder's side is when he was overseeing a, a program in post-war germany preventing former nazis from working in film or theater when asked for an exception so a former nazi could play jesus in the passion play Wilder said, yes, as long as you use real nails. <laughs> uh, all right, then. I think that about wraps it up then. Um, unless we're kind of, unless anything else anybody wants to talk about. So before we go, normally we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something they're enjoying at the moment, something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that's bringing you joy. Um, so to give Renuk and Charlene a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew. Again, I have not actually thought about this <laughs> at all. I've not been watching anything. Okay. I mean, I mean it's Christmas. Yeah. Of course it's Christmas. Yeah. Get a day off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been watching Succession. Ah, uh, there it is. The 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 uh, and and um, uh, Big Mouth, which I think uh, the, um, I'm 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 not sure if I like the the new season as much. Um, Succession at this point, we've had the thrilling finale. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't want to reveal too much about that in case uh. people aren't caught up. 
all of uh, those late 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 season developments yeah. like l to the og going triple platinum i did not see that coming i thought that <laughs> came out of nowhere i thought the writers brought it back around a logical way sorry Andrew. yeah yeah no i i i, I didn't i certainly did not see that coming um and in terms of a jack lemon thing and i think we mentioned uh miller um earlier who who did um death of a salesman um uh, jack lemon's glen gary glen ross they they on on set they called it death of a nobody's perfect <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's it, it i it's a great movie it's very um kind of uh theatrical or kind of play um uh but it, it it's 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 got terrific actors it's very male which is quite different to this movie but um it's 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 a great uh, jack lemon performance I enjoyed it a lot and Charlene, what would you recommend for listeners? What are you enjoying at the moment? Renock having knocked herself to the back of the queue. Uh, I'm going to be so off here. And I'm just going to say Chucky TV series. The Chucky TV series is like the best uh, thing I've seen all year. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Is that like yeah. Charles play? Is Brad Dorif back? Well, as voice, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I would imagine it be a bit much to ask if he was back in the flesh. After no, um, but they they do some very interesting things because there are flashbacks to when to Charles Lee Ray um, as a younger man. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to spoil anything. But okay, um, sorry. I, d- I didn't realize that like fan service for Chucky is a thing that people would never be doing. But this is full of fan service. But it's I think it's really good quality. But it's also kind of. Um, it's like got that nice uh, mix that Chucky movies do really well of like being kind of comic, but also really gross and horrible and mean spirited. Um, also, Jennifer Tilly, who doesn't want to see her like, just shine. Uh, mm. Our our current uh, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> we, we didn't realize as well how many people fancied Chucky. Turns out like Chucky is bae. Uh, <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> we are thirsty for Chucky. Thirsty, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But I do recommend if, you, if you're into your... Uh, if you're into horror TV shows, it's a very entertaining one. Uh, lots of teenagers get slashered, you know, all that stuff we like. <laughs> um, and I like it's, it's from I mean, one of the things that's most interesting about the whole Chucky series is that it's mostly still driven by Don Mancini. Like, yeah. it's, it's not like the, the other stuff where the auteur kind of fecks off after the first one and just starts like cashing checks. It's like, yeah, well, exactly. He just like kept coming back, making it gayer and gayer and gayer. Like, it's just this is great. his auteur. Like, this is his vision. This is like his grand vision is I just want yeah. to make Chucky. Um, and he doesn't do much else. Like, he just keeps coming back and giving us more brilliant <laughs> Chucky stuff and making Chucky like survive in a way that he like should never and I mean like as a as a concept and a franchise not as a doll uh, survive way longer than he had any right to <laughs> yeah because I remember like years ago hearing about like an, an, a new Chucky thing and the interesting things they were doing and I was, and I was like oh wow it is like a new yeah still going yeah. hit and miss now but uh, this is a hit is, I think. is he have like he, he's like a Furby now he has like AI <laughs> <laughs> He's old and grey, and <laughs> I have to. He's a vintage toy, basically now in yeah. like a museum, like Annabelle uh, from The Conjuring. Um, Pretty much. I, I have to. I actually do have to like rewatch the Chucky series. It's been ages since I've watched them. Yeah, you don't um, watch enough I mean, things. I don't. I need to watch more things. Um, yeah, you need to watch more things, Darren. Yeah, I'm, I'm just Charlene, more time. Charlene, I've never seen Chucky at all. Any, any Chucky? No, no. It was. It was like the movie in our house where. You know, it was like the one we shouldn't watch. I think because there was like, around the time 
a lot of hysteria about the um, uh, Jamie Bulger case and things like that. So I think that that association was a little close in my house. So it was the band film. And yeah. I think I, even to this day, I'm still like, I know, but I'm not allowed like to watch that. it. Yeah, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of know a few people who haven't ventured down that road. Yeah, they're yeah. Very, they're quite silly, so I wouldn't be worried. About <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, Renox parents are like, here, watch Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth instead, yeah. like but a regular I'm, kid. But I'm not allowed. <laughs> I I had that sense too growing up that it yeah. must be the most terrible movie ever because yeah. it, it obviously inspired alone that awful thing that happened. Well, I think what happened was that there was some. There was a weird like uh, Child's Play three, which is the worst one. I would say just skip it. Like, <laughs> like got the, had this weird connection to the Jamie Bulger case. Because um, one of the kids was watching like it. yellow paint or something. But it turns out actually, apparently, from what I've ever read, um, that it it wasn't necessarily the case. It was more it was just tied to some iconography within the film, um, and it, so it was just like took the brunt of the video nasties thing yeah yeah uh, the cover of child's play 3 is very cool so like i think that just looked really good in a tabloid as well um yeah. but yeah i think you, i think you should watch them but i certainly think you know there's like chucky or child's play one two and three um which are like straight up just like horror movies and then you've got bride of Ch- chucky and seed of chucky which are like <laughs> gas crack all together and you can just skip to those if you want but um and then you've got cult of Ch- chucky and curse of chucky which are kind of the more recent ones that are uh, they're good. They're good. They're not. Um, they're not the the greatest. I will do my ranking separately. Chucky. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I've taken up a lot of air talking about Chucky. And, Chucky or not? And, and would that be on your own personal 250, Charlene? Um, <laughs> <with a bullet. laughs> um, and and Rina, what would you recommend for this? Is what are you enjoying at the Um, moment? I have two French films to recommend that I've seen recently. Uh, that are I think in the the one is out now. Uh, Petite Mama, which is fantastic. It's Sitsiama doing Miyazaki. Um, it is magical realism. It is it it is that kind of like spirited away magical realism, but but funneled through her kind of minimal, um, her very pared back kind of film. It's probably her most sparse film, but it's. It made me cry like a baby. It is just these beautiful, delicate moments of life-affirming kindness and affection and love. And I think, you know, as it's Christmas, I think that's the kind of, you know, I always watch Miyazaki movies at Christmas for the same reason, is that they they affirm the feeling of being a kid again and it just, things being pure and I always watch films that remind me of being a kid, like Ponyo and Totoro at Christmas. So this is definitely, this definitely feels like it's going to end up in that kind of to watch at Christmas genre. Um, I think it's going to be on, I think it's out in cinemas now. Um, it's not here in Germany, I don't think, but uh, it'll be in Mubi. I think in February in the UK and Ireland. And the other one is uh, not quite as <laughs> joyous, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's too Do not watch this on Christmas Day with your granny. You know, I mean, I would be interested to see what their reaction would be because it would strike some interesting conversations. I I thought Raw was better, but I do, I thought Titan was um, everything that as a filmmaker, it made me so happy to see it in the Palm d'Or because I knew it was going to be mad. 
And then when I saw it, it made me super happy because it was just relentless and imperfect and excessive and over the top and flawed. And she got to do that. And that made me so happy. Um, While I do prefer Raw, I think it's just this wild ride of someone throwing everything that they've got at the screen and giving us a journey unlike anything that you've ever seen before. It reminded me of um, Japanese filmmakers like Shinji Tsukamoto and Takashi Miike and even more so than Cronenberg. But I just thought there's this is someone who was so in control of their craft. Um, not going to ha- make everybody happy, but I'm just happy that a film like that exists. For however flawed it is, it's it's a good world that this is the film that wins the Palme d'Or. That's exactly I just felt like I'm so happy this exists. Totally. Uh, that's out tomorrow in the cinema. So you can go see it tomorrow morning. On St. Stephen's Day. But they will say the one thing that I am um, listening to a lot is I only recently, and I know you'll um, you'll appreciate this, Charlene, I only recently got into Case File and I am obsessed. Um, it's ju- <laughs> well, there's so many episodes. <laughs> I know. Well, I've, I've listened to a lot of them in the last few weeks, okay. but and it has kind of rotted my brain in the sense that everything is you know, potentially creepy and true crimey and there's, you know, everybody's potential murderer, but it's at the heart of it. It's not, you know, it doesn't wallow in details. It's just really good storytelling. It's how they've weaved it all together to tell a really, really, really great story from um, crimes that you might be familiar with, but it is just, um, it, it is incredibly addictive and I get really, you know, terrifyingly giddy on a Saturday when it appears on my phone but it is my favorite thing right now and I'm and that's not going to change for a while <laughs> it's a great recommendation um and, and in terms of recommendations for myself a couple of quick ones um first one is uh first of all Redux uh break us is now available or was available on the RT player um, was. <laughs> and you should check that out it was okay uh, if you have a time machine <laughs> uh, you can travel back and listen to it on the ORD player or watch it on the ORD player um, but no so congratulations uh, fantastic um, and I mean obviously there's a lot of other stuff happening which we'll talk about in a moment but just want to say really enjoyed that uh, the other thing is having cinemas back uh, as well has been great in lockdown and particularly visiting the lighthouse as well um, let's hope it's still open now <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I was very careful with my tenses there but no it really has been uh, an absolute delight being able and particularly like again the lighthouse everybody working there is fantastic and being able to see movies there has been amazing um, so yeah I agree but, um, so just with, with the two guests it's, I thought it was worth sharing I, those, those, those things I'm really there. glad we can cough on each other again no. <laughs> coughing ain't coughing if you're not coughing on other people. I mean, we're obviously in the same room right now. We've all just kind of like left our families exactly. to go cough in exactly. each other's yeah. presents for Christmas. Yeah. Um, and nobody got me a trombone. I'm really disappointed about that. I have a trumpet around here somewhere. The day isn't over yet. Maybe uh, someone will get you a trombone. I mean, I, I do. I, speaking of, uh, I do. I do remember somebody pointing out like how spitting was the hottest pop culture trend of the autumn between like success. <laughs> Session and Ted Lasso and Dune. It was like, yep, people are ready to spit at or on themselves or surfaces, like for the foreseeable future. And I was like, yeah, 
This is this is where we live right now. This is what counts as getting hot and heavy right now in film and television. Um, in terms of, of other uh, recommendations from myself, just, yeah, movies, movies in general. Uh, we got a tweet from a couple of listeners asking, would we do a special episode uh, covering Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright's new one? Uh, we won't because it didn't make the 250. Um, but no, just to, to acknowledge, I really enjoyed that. It's well worth seeking out. It's been a really good season uh, for movies. Kenneth Branagh's Belfast is out in cinemas. The Year of the Dog uh, is, I think, out of cinemas now and will be on Netflix. Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, uh, which is power of the dog apologies which is absolutely stunning starring ben dick cumberbatch as the worst person in the world it is amazing i really really love that um yeah just just watch watch movies um that that's my my recommendation if our Merry listeners Christmas. can God, vote last night and so and then so on to the 250 we will yeah, eagerly yeah. cover it uh, very exactly eagerly. but King if you can get it on before you probably get it on before you get taffin on um, <laughs> we just set more <laughs> realistic goals for this podcast <laughs> Um, yeah. And yeah, and then King Richard as well is, is one I actually quite like as somebody who likes a good old fashioned biopic. I can't um, wait to see right. the worst person in the world. That's the one I'm so excited <laughs> by. Beautiful. Oh. Yes, we should clarify. Yes, the worst person in the world is a different movie. It is not The Power of the Dog, even though Ben <laughs> plays the worst person in the world in The Power of the Dog. They are two separate movies. Oh, and uh, Spencer. I love Spencer as well. And Lamb, mm. if you haven't seen oh, Lamb. Yeah. And, and go in blind. Don't listen to any anything else anybody says don't google don't it just go anything. in yeah just go in and see lamb blind i'm like andrew last week said don't listen to any recommendation darren gives you about a movie i'm putting that to the test go see lamb go see <laughs> go it see blind it. um all right then so where can we find you what you're doing what's up so charlene what's up to where can we find you what you're doing uh yeah you can find me on twitter at charlene Leiden. uh what am i up to eating turkey <laughs> uh, that's about it um yeah because i'm on my christmas holiday so you know <laughs> um we, we I, I want to just acknowledge that we've really committed to the fact that this is christmas day but it, it is, is. So it, is definitely yeah, it absolutely day. is um, cinema is closed yeah. <laughs> i should probably say actually that when i come back from my christmas holidays we will be doing a paul thomas anderson season uh, where we will show oh. all of the films because Licorice Pizza will be out, which I have not seen yet, and I'm very excited. Um, but yeah, that is that is the next kind of thing. I'm sorry, Rianok, you probably won't. I'll be. come home. Some I'll come home. Cinema in Berlin is I, definitely doing. I miss that. the lighthouse so much. Like I know there's amazing cinemas here that have like Art Deco-y, lovely kind of seats and stuff. But it's like when I came back to Dublin the first time after moving I had to stay in the Maldron because I went to the lighthouse every night when I was back and oh, I was just like oh this is what happened there it was your little home Rhiannock you're there all the time I know <laughs> I miss you <laughs> And and like the only question I have to follow up on the Paul Thomas Anderson season is, will you be doing a Paul Thomas Anderson recommend season that will bring back Let There Be Carnage to cinemas? Um, that's oh, my question. I, that's a great idea. <laughs> I loved Let There Be Carnage. It sounds and I just brilliant. Say, anyway, I, have, I have not seen <laughs> it, but everything I've heard about it makes me want to watch it. It's the best studio oh. rom-com since Crazy Rich Asians. There's like... I love the first Venom as well, though. I mean... I didn't think I would, but I thought they're I they both great. <laughs> Tom Hardy finally found a screen partner worthy of Tom Hardy. It's Tom Hardy. Um, and Re- yeah, we, Re- saw, we saw him in Locke. Yeah. <laughs> like how yeah. well he works, kind of. Works with himself, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Arena, what would you recommend? So, sorry, what are you, what, what are you doing? What can, where can people find your stuff online? Because you've had a really phenomenal, like, past couple of months, uh, deservedly. Oh, oh, well, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um... 
Well, so uh, if, if listeners were looking for to get uh, to dip into the oeuvre of uh, Vinati <laughs> Gregor, where could they, they do so? Um, well, what would be the starting point? Definitely Twitter, because I'm there every waking moment of the day, uh, not doing the million things I'm supposed to be doing. Um, Rinak Nigrir, it's spelled R-I-O-G-H-N-A-C-H-N-I-G. And then uh, Rinak Nigrir at, in, at Instagram. Uh, you know, it'll be in the show notes, because this is too many letters to spell it. We'll be here all night. Um, but uh, this year, or at least Christmas, I will be drinking Glühwein in... Berlin, where I'm going to stay for Christmas uh, with my cats and my partner. Um, my mum is here. She, I mean, will. I say this in the future tense. I mean, they're all right here, obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to have some duck for dinner and uh, go to Christmas markets and throw an axe at a bear. Um, that is one of the games that you can do. It is a paper bear. Yeah, I feel like we need to clarify that. It's a paper bear. Um, it's a paper bear. And you can do archery and... I mean, but it's and, a real axe. Up the, yeah. It's the bear. There, there, there is a very bad bear invasion of Berlin. I mean, they're, they're kind of everywhere, but... Um, it is unbearable, I hear. Oh. <laughs> they call it Berlin. <laughs> Just figured out that's why they give the golden burr at the Berlin bear, Film Festival, yeah. yeah. It is the, uh, the, the flag is the bear. So there are a lot yeah. of bears. A lot of painted bears about. At least oh, when, big when, ones. I, when I was there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're still there. Old and bears. Are any of your, any of your films actually kind of showing? Are they like, I mean, I, I rec- I, it turns out I recommended something that may not be available to watch <laughs> at the moment. That it's really, where can people watch uh, some of your films? Like, um, That's a good question. Um, oh, okay, sorry. So, oh, as in, I, I have no idea. I don't know. Don't, I, 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 it could, it could change. It could be changed um, by today. But uh, it, it's. Which is Christmas. Which is obviously Christmas. There might be there there may be news to have revealed already today, but um, uh, the recent film that I made, "Don't Go Where I Can't Find You," is uh, I will have have been at Foil Film Festival in Derry um, this weekend, which is not uh, November twenty eighth. Um, and from there, more festivals that have yet to reveal themselves Perfect. Perfect. Um, in Ireland and otherwise. This is the one that you mentioned kind of has a bit of a, a vibe. A spooky like a, vibe. Yeah. Um, a queer uh, haunted house uh, musical love story. Wow. Um, all these words, all these beautiful words. <laughs> together. In one sentence. All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for, for taking time out of your Christmas day. It has actually been a huge pleasure. It's, it's been really great to have both of you. We asked Santa moment. Claus for this. Um, yeah, this is why I delivered. delivered. He delivers. He's so good all he year. Got he down the pipe <laughs> of the tiny, the tiny stove. The 250 trailer that we have. <laughs> <laughs> the Winnebago. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we go out into the desert and make podcasts. But they're, they're blue podcasts, so it's okay. Well, okay, no, wait, that sounds... Anyway, never mind. With that in mind, uh, we'll be back. So, last week... got me the E for explicit. <laughs> La- 
Last week, we possibly covered a new entry on the list. I suspect it's possible either Matrix Revela Revelations or Matrix Resurrections or Spider-Man or even Belfast came into the 250 and that we've covered it as part of this podcast. If that's the case, we'll be taking a week off next week to allow us to recover, to post-gorge, and then we will be back with myself and Andrew discussing Denis Villeneuve's Incendies. Some like it very hot. Oh, such a good film. Take care, guys. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye-bye. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Bye. Thank Bye you to so your family. Really appreciate yeah. <laughs> I couldn't aspire to anything higher than to fill the desire to make you my own. Pa-dum, pa-dum, pa-dum.